Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to Xinhua Razi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly journal on labour, civil society, and rights. Here's a cautionary tale about a cartographic crisis that shook Sino-German ties. Back in 2014, on greeting President Xi Jinping in Berlin, Chancellor Angela Merkel had a gift for him: a map of China. It was made in 1735 by the French mapmaker Jean-Baptiste Bourguignon d'Anville. It sounds like the perfect gift, but this map depicts China in a different colour from both Hainan and Taiwan. That's totally at odds with China's view of its own territory, both now and in the past, and many Chinese saw it as a slap in the face, a shocking breach of etiquette. Today we're talking about cartography and the importance of maps. Traditionally, Chinese maps were originally less about territories and more about peoples and cultures. They mapped the lines between civilization and barbarism. In imperial maps of the world, China not only appears as the centre of the universe, but as the world itself. More Middle Earth than Middle Kingdom, traditional maps were gloriously detailed at the centre, but decidedly blurry and blank at the edges. Despite the best efforts of Jesuit missionaries, foreign countries, even large ones like India, appear as insignificant islands. This meant that at the end of the Qing Dynasty, it wasn't entirely clear where China began and ended. And it's still not clear today. To discuss China's cartographic obsession, we're joined by John Zinder, a sociologist from Cornell University, and James Miles, longtime China correspondent for the BBC, and now China editor at the Economist. Welcome to the program. James, it seems like the politics of maps and mapping is increasingly important. Why do you think this is happening now under Xi Jinping's administration? Well, I think there's been more of a sense under Xi Jinping that there is a national mission that has to be fulfilled, and as he calls it, it's the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. What's implicit in that is resolving that one great problem that was left over from the Chinese Civil War, namely、uh, the status of Taiwan. Now, of course, in the background over the past few years, we've had governments in Taiwan which have been. Much more sceptical of the traditional relationship with mainland China, which have pushed the envelope towards greater independence、uh, for, for Taiwan. That's been an enormous concern to the authorities in Beijing, and Xi Jinping is now dealing with a government in Taiwan that he views as profoundly sceptical of these traditional ties, even though President Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan has avoided. Or tried to avoid upsetting mainland China in the way that independence-leaning predecessor in that position, Chen Shui-bian, did earlier this century.、Um, nonetheless,、uh, Xi Jinping, given his nationalist mission, has been、uh, responding to the presence of such a government under Tsai Ing-wen with enormous prickliness and、uh, efforts to stifle Taiwan's international space. And I think what we're now seeing with maps is part of that. We've seen this a number of times in Australia. One incident that springs to mind is an IT lecturer at Sydney University who showed contested territory on the Chinese-Indian border under Indian control. 
Actually, the map was just decorating a slide which said, let me know if you want to cover an entrepreneur or company in class. It became a huge deal with lots of enraged students, and the lecturer was forced to apologise. The Global Times crowed, the China-India border dispute broke out in Australia, and China won. James, why do you think there's so much fuss being made about a single lecturer in a single class? Were the students acting as state proxies, or were they genuinely outraged by his mistake? Well, I'd be very surprised uh, if they had uh, received specific orders from Chinese officials that if anything came up that related to the uh, drawing of lines on maps, they were to push back strongly on that. Uh, You have to bear in mind that Chinese students have been brought up in a country where patriotic education, as they call it, is absolutely front and centre in the education system. It has been since uh, the 1990s, but the emphasis on this has only grown over the past uh, decade or more, and even more so under Xi Jinping. So when students leave China to come to Australia and other countries and are exposed to different ways of viewing China's boundaries, they feel rather annoyed by that. Uh, They have not been exposed to arguments about how other countries might see uh, borders, and it's hardly surprising, I think, that some of them would push back. John, it often seems that these struggles over maps are playing out in more low-profile ways. I mean, have you heard of cases where pressure is placed on academics to change maps in academic journals? Yes, that is a situation that several of my colleagues have encountered. Because this is an issue that is uh, sensitive both for foreign researchers who are collaborating with Chinese colleagues, and particularly for Chinese colleagues uh, I I am refraining from naming the people and articles that are involved, but I know that these are instances that have happened, and I've heard of other instances where this is this is going on, and so I have a sense that this is a broader trend. So the first situation that I'm aware of is one in which an article was published that included a map of Eastern Asia that presented the island of Taiwan in a different color from the area of mainland China. And after that publication happened, a Chinese collaborator in the writing of that paper was harassed online, I think on WeChat, by a stranger. Um, You know, she was asked uh, to account for why Taiwan was not represented the same as the rest of, of China. And she came back and talked to that colleague and demanded an explanation. A second situation that I'm aware of was one in which an article has gotten to the point of being invited for a revision from a journal. And so they'd submitted it to the journal and in peer review, people had suggested some changes. And at that point, a Chinese contributor to the article spoke to my colleague and said that that, uh, the representation of uh, disputed territories between China and India, not as controlled by India, but representation of them as disputed was something that he couldn't stand with. And uh, he said to my colleague that he could experience professional repercussions if his name was on an article that represented those territories as disputed. In the third instance, an article at a very high ranking journal nearly fell apart because of disagreements among collaborators who included both uh, scholars based in China and scholars based outside of China over how the boundaries of China should be represented. John, it does seem to me a bit odd, given that these publications don't have a wide readership. They might only be read by hundreds or perhaps thousands of people at the most. Why are scientific publications being targeted? Are they really that influential? 
So I think there are two ways I would respond with that. One is that noting what James has said before about the Chinese state and Chinese citizens' experience with representations of Chinese territory, that any representation that does not accord with official presentations is likely to be found offensive to citizens and a deep concern to the Chinese state. And in that context, even though scientific journals may not be read by a large number of people, they are considered a relative to other kinds of publications, a particularly authoritative representation of what is real, whether that is the specific findings of a study, which may have very little to do with the content of the map, or where the map is indeed a key part of, of what's going on in a study. And in that sense, shaping how maps show up in scientific journals is a way to shape the common sense that's presented more broadly. I must say, though, this is probably not just a phenomenon that we see in, China, in, in scientific journals. I'm sure if Chinese authorities had their way, The Economist would also be presenting maps that represent the boundaries officially recognized with the government of the People's Republic of China. So I think that one of the key things here is that, as with any other form of propaganda, you might say, if people see enough maps that represent China's territory as the Chinese state sees it, that becomes accepted more and more as common sense. I wanted to ask what kind of response you've seen uh, in scholarly communities. I mean, are people talking about the difficulty of drawing up maps with Chinese co-authors or the kind of issues that you've mentioned? Um, I have talked with a number of colleagues about the issue. Now, one response is that, oh, this doesn't matter to me because I don't use maps much in my publications. And especially in the discipline of sociology, a lot of people mention the country where things take place and don't bother with a map, which uh, conveniently circumvents this whole issue. To the people with whom I have talked about it, it's usually something that they recognize as there and sometimes use really creative ways to think about it in other ways. For example, some people I know who work in uh, southwestern parts of China say, well, what we were trying to represent with a map is not international boundaries or, or geopolitical realities as they are now or have they, as they have been in the past, but rather the landscapes in which people were studying or living or the areas in which some kind of a phenomenon takes place. And so they might choose not to foreground or even to leave altogether international boundaries. So, James, I mean, would you agree with that reading that there's this kind of granular level of detail in order to almost force China's kind of borders on journals so that it becomes reality in print at the very least? Well, it's often very difficult to determine where pressure is actually coming from. And whether, as, as was raised earlier, that students who are pushing back against this kind of thing, as they see it, misrepresentation of China's borders are acting under state orders, or whether particular state agencies, publishing houses, are acting as a result of some central directive when they uh, try to get foreign publications to change the way China is represented on maps. So there's a, a lot of uncertainty, I think, surrounding where exactly the pressures are coming from. Uh, we know that there is in Beijing a, a much stronger nationalist agenda that has taken shape since uh, Xi Jinping came to power. And officials around the country, including those uh, responsible for uh, propaganda, for publishing, 
part of their job is to interpret signals from Beijing, not just to read specific directives. And so part of what we're seeing may well be an interpretation uh, by officials at lower levels of what they believe to be the will of the leadership in Beijing. That's often how political power works in China. So it's very hard for us to actually trace things back to the ultimate source of any particular order. And I think there is something of that going on here. It's clear that Xi Jinping is enormously powerful. He has put his imprint on every aspect of policymaking in China. He has taken charge of every major area of policy in the country in a way that we haven't seen before in the reform and opening era that began in the late 1970s. And so it's natural that that officials lower down the system are trying to interpret Xi Jinping's will and are jumping quickly, especially because they see him as being so powerful and are, are trying as hard as possible to appear loyal to him. So that there's something of that going on as well. Uh, that isn't to deny that we are seeing something somewhat different. And, and I think uh, it has become evident over the past few months that state agencies, for whatever reason, are uh, beginning to, to take more issue with the way that China is represented on maps, and not just represented on maps, but also how Taiwan in particular is described, whether the word country is applied to it, as, as it often has been on foreign websites. But by and large, Chinese officials haven't made much of an issue of that until relatively recently. I mean, it seems like there's a thread from what James was saying, and also from what you're saying. We're seeing these similarities in responses. James kept saying it's hard to tell where pressure is from, whether it's from patriotic people or there's a decision made at some level. I mean, John, from the stories that you've heard, how would you kind of see those sort of pressure points as being applied? I think there are a few different places where we will see things. I mean, one clearly is the professional incentives of of Chinese scholars. And um, I'm not sure if people get hired and fired on the basis of these things or whether it's it's pay cuts or other kinds of things. But I have a clear sense from the instances I spoke of before and other conversations I've had about other issues that uh, that people in Chinese universities are both you know, facing the kinds of pressures that Western academics face to publish a lot of high quality work, but also to publish work that does not raise serious questions about the legitimacy or the correctness of the decisions of the ruling authorities in China. Another place to look at this, though, um, in the future, I don't know if this is an issue so far, but it will be interesting to see if this also plays out in the kinds of pressures that we've been seeing on academic journals and publishers around uh, removing certain articles from websites accessed within China, whether maps will also fall under that, especially now that uh, Springer Nature has uh, um, has indicated that it will cooperate with those activities. And I just wanted to ask, we've talked about a variety of different tactics that have been used, you know, sort of full-on arguments, harassment from Weibo, or just sort of pleas from scholars to change. In total, how successful do you think these strategies have been in changing maps so that the borders do accord with China's version of its territorial sovereignty? 
That's a really hard thing to judge. As a scholar, I would say that I would need to get a representative sample of articles with maps of China in journals in recent years to see if there was a change. And uh, as far as I know, that study has not been done. My sense there, though, is that uh, there is a pretty clear division in what boundaries are represented and also other uh, cartographic choices that are made in articles where Chinese authors are the main authors and where people from outside of China are the main authors. Definitely something worth further exploration. Well, one thing that surprised me, I used to be a natural scientist and inorganic chemist, no less. And science is meant to be about facts rather than geographic aspirations or feelings. Do you, as a scientist, see this as censorship? That's an interesting way to pose this question, because I think based on my colleagues' experience, I would say what they're experiencing is a form of censorship, or at least self-censorship, because people are concerned about a repercussion of, of doing something. But I can imagine that there are a lot of cases in which people don't experience it as censorship or even as something that that's all that important to what you're doing. Another thing that I would note is that... Uh, whether or not it raises a concern largely depends on the political commitments of the scientists involved, whether these geopolitical questions are important to them, and perhaps also how they want feel about treating the concerns of other people involved in these disputes. John, one of the issues that comes up in critical geography is the idea of counter-mapping. Have you come across any examples of this in your research in China? When I was mentioning those uh, colleagues who chose not to use nation-state boundaries, they often do that in deference to populations who are not represented well in those maps. But some take that further, and there's a, a large area of study, uh, largely by geographers, around efforts of countermapping, where people who find that their claims or concerns are not represented in maps either find old maps or present new maps that counter the claims that are present in commonly used maps. And that's the kind of thing that's uh, that's a really important phenomenon, and especially in Southeast Asian studies. But of course, is a very, very difficult, if not dangerous prospect to try and do within China. You get something like that in Chinese ultranationalist literature, representations of what the West thinks of China. So you get these great maps in the China Can Say No series of books from the late 1990s that claim to show Western maps of China. The map I'm thinking of features a massive eastern Turkestan and a huge Tibet which is swallowing up China and tiny little China is pressed down next to Taiwan. Does this fit in with counter-mapping? The, the counter-mapping efforts I've seen are often in situations where people in rural areas in various countries in Southeast Asia have faced instances where the government was going to take their land, whether to sell it to a corporation for resource extraction or to set up a national park, where people would make claims to lands as indigenous territories or as long-ago long parts of villages. And that's not a thing that's foreign to China. At a very small scale, it's quite common, I think, for people in different communities to use old maps and bring together new maps around property disputes. On the other hand, one thing that I've seen, my last trip to China, I was in a restaurant and I saw a map that you could say is a kind of Chinese countermapping of the world, just like on, um, I think it was the West Wing, there was an episode where a person gave a lesson on critical cartography to, to a politician by showing a map of the world in which the South Pole was on the top. And I saw this marvelous map that was a map of the world, but it was 
the projection that was vertical in orientation rather than horizontal in orientation, but taken in such a way that China appears near the center and the United States appears upside down on the bottom, I think. It was a marvelous repicturing of how the world works, putting China at the center and the people who are usually on top in other places. Putting the Middle Kingdom back in the middle. James, it seems that one group unlikely to push back are the PR departments of large multinational companies. In January, US hotel giant Marriott found itself in strife for a survey in Chinese that listed Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, and most problematically, Tibet as countries. In response, the company set a new benchmark for corporate groveling. A number of other companies also had to apologise, including Delta, Zara and Muji. Do either of you see any prospect of companies doing more than just rolling over? I think uh, we've seen a process underway for a long time now of uh, not just companies but countries bowing to China's enormous power and wealth and uh, particularly uh, being conscious of the fact that uh, China, for all the rosy-spectacled views of the country back in the 1990s when it was thought that economic reform would lead to a more liberal political climate there, now a realisation that that it just simply isn't happening. And if one wants to do business with this country, as uh, many governments and companies see it, one has to trim one's sails when it comes to asserting one's own view of the world and indeed one's own values to some extent. Uh, Countries are not uh, making a hullabaloo about human rights uh, in China and companies much less. uh, They have to consider their bottom lines, uh, they believe. And the more powerful that China appears to be, and certainly since the global financial crisis, that gap between China and the rest of the world, the West in particular, has appeared to widen. Therefore, we're seeing more and more people bending to that particular wind and more and more of this is now happening. James, perhaps the area where Chinese maps are most hotly disputed is the South China Sea, where China has been arguing that its nine-dash line uh, shows sort of large swathes of the South China Sea uh, belonging to China. I mean, do you think it's possible that we are the playbook for Taiwan when it comes to maps and mapping is being extended to the South China Sea as well? Well, that's a very interesting question, actually. There haven't been demands that, uh, that Western cartographers uh, draw uh, nine dashes around the South China Sea when representing it. And China's always had a rather sort of ambiguous relationship with the nine dash line and not uh, being clear in its own rhetoric whether that is actually a delineation of sovereign territory or whether it's some sort of more nebulous concept of a zone in which China has some kind of authority, but something perhaps a bit short of sovereignty. And it's played on that ambiguity in its dealings with America and other countries in the region as well. And I think it would be quite a leap if it were to begin to say explicitly that this is Chinese sovereign territory and you must show that on maps. I mean, that would ratchet up tensions enormously with China's neighbours and uh, with America particularly. Whereas in the case of Taiwan, there is a very long-running dispute over the status uh, of that island. And and ditto in the case of India. Uh, Nobody's been disputing that there is a sovereignty issue uh, between India and China, and there has been for 
for many years. But to raise the level of the South China Sea to an explicit sovereignty dispute, um, I think, is something that China, for now at least, would prefer to avoid. How do we read this kind of increased sensitivity towards maps and, and cartographic representations of China? Is it a, a sort of true sign that the Deng Xiaoping's era of hide and bide, bide your time and hide your power is over and that China's now trying to impose its cartographic view of itself on the rest of the world by whatever means, including economic coercion, necessary? Well, hide and bide has been consigned to the dustbin already in, in a conspicuous way in the South China Sea by the building up of these um, artificial islands um, and uh, the very clear assertion by China of sovereignty over those particular islands. But it is very clear that China has become more assertive in the South China Sea, taking a risk thereby that uh, that Deng Xiaoping, the author of the hide and bide idea, probably would not have taken. Uh, and the same has applied in the East China Sea with respect to the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands that are controlled uh, by Japan. But uh, you have to look at that other big unresolved question, and that is Taiwan right in the middle of all this. Yes, clearly um, a pushback on the, on the question of maps. But does the abandonment of hide and bide mean that China is now thinking much more actively of a military solution to the Taiwan problem. And I think even Xi Jinping would think long and hard about that. For all the military buildup that we see, I think China is far from being at a stage where it thinks it can take on the might of America and its allies in the region. It would love to be able to solve the Taiwan problem, but knows that a military solution is an extremely difficult and dangerous one to pursue. Dangerous because it would be very hard militarily to achieve, uh, but also especially dangerous because the consequences of it for China's economic development could be enormous. So when it comes to the question of maps, I mean, why bother is it to regularize maps and not so that at least on paper at least these areas belong to china it's a way of showing that china is becoming richer and stronger and now that we are richer and stronger we're going to start um, pushing people around a bit more if they don't represent china the way that we like. I don't think that that means that China is thinking in terms of solutions on the ground necessarily that uh, correspond to what it would wish for on maps. In other words, um, asserting actual control over uh, Taiwan or asserting complete sovereignty over the entire South China Sea. As I've said, I think that even China hesitates to assert that explicitly. But China is changing and it's uh, becoming richer and more powerful, not quite sure of how to deploy that power globally, finding it's rather easy to push nowadays with the West in uh, still in the economic, uh, coming out of the economic doldrums, but still uh, not growing in anything nearly as strongly as China, and politics in Washington being more inward looking, and China seeing advantages that can be seized as a result of that. Many thanks to our guests, John Zinder and James Miles. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. This episode was recorded in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne 
by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from Xinhua Razi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now. Bye for now.